Glasgow is a city known for many things. It's a university town, for sure. Uh, there's a very famous or infamous, perhaps, football rivalry. There's the long history of shipbuilding and industry. The city's home to breweries and distilleries. And, of course, it's home to a wide range of people from different countries, cultures, religions, and ethnicities. But did you know that at the turn of the 20th century, Glasgow was host to a most peculiar man, Thomas Lake Harris. Harris was the leader of a, get ready for this, religious sex cult based in California. And he had friends in Glasgow whose home he fled to after things got hot at his Santa Rosa commune. So today we're going to tell you all about Thomas Lake Harris, the sex cult he founded, the Brotherhood of the New Life, and his fateful visit to Glasgow. Uh, hi, I'm Taylor. I'm Kat, and welcome to episode 70 of Square Mile of Murder. If you've been around for a while, you will know that we like to cover a Scottish or Scottish-adjacent case every 10 episodes, and we've got a cult-themed one for you today, so let's get going. Thomas Lake Harris was born on May 15th, 1823 in Fenny Stratford, which is now part of Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire, just northwest of London. Uh, his parents were strict Calvinistic Baptists and had very little money. And here's where we start to see the first of many similarities this story shares with the story of the Oneida community and John Humphrey Noyes. Though Noyes was about 10 years older than Harris, their paths took surprisingly similar routes in some similar locales. If you haven't listened to our episode about Noyes and the Oneida community, we recommend you do that first, and then come back to this episode because we've got into more of the nitty gritty of like Calvinism in that one. So that's like, is that two episodes two ago? Two episodes, yeah, 68. so 68, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Harris felt smothered by his parents' religion growing up and even went so far to later say that it, quote, poisoned his spirit. Which is never really what you want. No, you don't want a poisonous spirit. No, no. You just want a spirit high in alcohol content like vodka. Yes, yes. Uh, when Harris was just five years old, his family moved from England to Utica in upstate New York, which just so happens to be the uh, county seat of the Oneida County in New York. Go figure. Oh. Uh, Harris's mother died at some point during his childhood, which forced him to help support the family starting at the age of just nine, which is rough for anyone. Yeah, that's really that. young. Plus, add on to that, like, a strict religious upbringing and, yeah. like, that's rough. But yeah, any any kind of responsibility like that at the age of nine is... It's, it's just the first of many <laughs> red flags. Yes. <laughs> Uh, during this time, he also educated himself, though exact how exactly is unclear. Not many sources actually cover his early life. By age 17, he had, he had accepted God as, quote, the loving parent of the widespread family of man, uh, after having a vision of his dead mother where their spirits communicated. Yep. Regular occurrence when you're 17. It's totally fine. And it happened all the time when I was learning to drive at the age of 17. Yep. That's like the only significant thing I can think of that happens when you're 17 in this country. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you communicated with your, your dead mother about 
driving well, skills, no. but she's not dead, so. <laughs> no, my mother is very much alive. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was my grandmother. Maybe, there you go, there you go. Um, <laughs> what else was I doing when I was 17? I was applying to yeah. colleges. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not pull out that thread. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so by the age of 21, he became a Universalist minister of the Fourth Universalist Church in New York City's Upper West Side. And in another four years, he became a minister at the Independent Christian Congregation of New York. Is the Upper West Side, is that posh or is that the Upper East Side? Or are they both Ooh, posh? Good question. At this point in time that we're talking about Upper East, east side would have been like the fancier place but upper west side now is also quite um posh the whole of manhattan i suppose yes yeah like upper west side upper east side is like old money upper west side is like new money younger money (laughs) not like not like new new money but like they settled, settled away from the older money just to, just to differentiate themselves slightly. Just across the park, it's fine. You can wave, <laughs> wave across Central Park. <laughs> um, so let's talk for a second about universalism. Again, in this episode, just like in the ones before, with the caveat that. I personally have no understanding of religion, organized or otherwise, and we are not theology professors or anything like that, so. Yeah, I mean, I did, like, religious studies, philosophy, and ethics at A-level, which is, like, 17, like, 16 to 18 years old. Um, So I have a basic understanding, but not in, like, a real proper, like, theology or philosophical yeah, see, um, theory. In in high school, we had to take classes under the department slash categorization of philosophy, psychology, and religion. And me being me, I specifically only chose classes from the philosophy and psychology group of those <laughs> three. So <laughs> skipped that whole religion part. Um, But so anyway, with that in mind, universalism is not actually just a Christian thing. Uh, According to Wikipedia, at its core, universalism is the philosophical and theological concept that some ideas have universal application or applicability. And universalism also focuses on a belief in one fundamental truth which transcends the national, cultural or religious boundaries or interpretations of that truth. So that's that seems pretty cool, pretty like easy to get behind. So this concept has influenced a long list of religions, some of which include Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Sikhism, and Unitarian Universalism. Uh, and in this case, Harris was involved with Christian Universalism, which is based on the fundamental idea of universal reconciliation or the concept that all humans will eventually be saved and enter the kingdom of heaven. And they also believe that an eternal hell does not exist and that this concept goes against Jesus's teachings. 
Um, so this is the kind of preaching and sort of ministering that Harris was doing at the Independent Christian Congregation of New York. And a member of his congregation was none other than Horace Greeley, who was a New York newspaper editor and publisher and actually ran for president at one point, And I think he lost to Ulysses S. Grant. So fun fact. Uh, Now, Greeley had founded the New York Tribune in 1841 and quickly became moved by Harris's sermons. Uh, One such sermon about the suffering of children on the streets of the city so moved Greeley that he actually asked members of the congregation to stay behind after the sermon was over, and they all worked together to plan out the founding of the New York Juvenile Asylum. And this asylum, which is now called the Children's Village for probably obvious reasons. Uh, Yeah, I mean, juvenile asylum sounds sounds like... Sounds bad. (laughs) Sounds horrific. Yeah. Uh, So this institution isn't better. Organization, whatever. uh, Cared for, trained, and, quote, morally uplifted the city's poor children. And now... So they still exist, but now it's more along the lines of, like, helping underprivileged children within New York City via, like, working with other social services, basically. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, his sermons were so moving that they could help found social institutions. Persuasive guy. Yeah, that's also first indicators that he could be, like, a cult leader. Hmm? Charismatic, like... Yeah, you can talk people into doing things. Harris soon became a popular speaker, writer, and poet. Uh, During this period, his interest turned towards spiritualism, which is a movement based on the belief that the spirits of the dead exist and have the ability and inclination to communicate with the living. Oh my god. And Swedenborgianism. Swedenborgianism stems from the teachings of Swedish mystic Emanuel Swedborg, who was a pluralistic Christian theologian, scientist, philosopher, and inventor of the 1700s. Swedenborg had a, quote, spiritual awakening in which the Lord had opened his spiritual eyes, allowing him to freely visit heaven and hell, which, of course, allowed him to have conversations with angels, demons, and other spirits. What the hell was he taking? Because I would like some of it. Yeah, right? (laughs) Oh, and also, the last judgment occurred in 1757, the year before he published his work describing this whole experience. Yeah, it's like... It's very convenient. Yeah, That makes sense. It's it's fine. Uh, Followers of Swedenborgism, also called the New Church. Easier to say. (laughs) We will go with the New Church from now on. uh, Believe that anyone who was spiritually advanced and aware enough could communicate with angels in heaven. I mean, it's it's kind of like encouraging, like, if you just believe in your spirituality, you too can speak to Gabriel. Do you know what that sounds like? Like a cult? Yeah! Yeah! We got a theme going here. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so 
as you perhaps might expect from a guy who was into the idea that like, you know, this universalism idea that like everyone's going to get to heaven. Harris was super into the idea that like you could be in heaven on earth. Also similar to John Humphrey Noyes, actually. Uh, and so he quickly started incorporating Swedenborg's ideas into his own teachings and writings. And, of course, as all of these guys seem to do, gets a little restless. He, he's not satisfied anymore with just preaching in New York in, like, someone else's church. So he left in 1851 for Virginia. In Virginia, he co-founded the Mountain Cove Community of Spiritualists with Reverend J.L. Scott. Um, just to put this in context, in 1851, he was 28 at this time. Yeah. This is very young. Very young. Um, that's good that you can do that math, because as I was writing this, I was thinking about putting in the ages, but I was like, that's too hard. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes, I bring the maths. Uh. Um, I bring the bullshit. No, we both bring that. <laughs> but yeah, because we forget how young the these cult leaders are when they start out. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he was 21 when he became a minister, which is quite mm. young. And then, like, almost immediately he starts spinning out into all these other different directions, so. Yeah. But it's like, um... Uh, Alfonso Constanzo, who we talked about last week, he was seen as late twenties mm -hmm. when when he died. Yeah, and he'd already, you know, grown this little cult in in Mexico. Um, Charles Manson oh, was he was like was only very young, twenty eight, when he, he was, was captured or something, right? Well, something like because he only died a couple of years ago, didn't he? Yeah, so he was in prison for what forty odd, fifty years. Yeah, so they're starting out very young. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think helps because, like, to build up a following, you're this, like, young, engaging, charismatic, like, orator or speaker or whatever. Yeah. And then once you have followers, you're seen as this, like, experienced, wise, like, all-knowing yeah. super dude or whatever. <laughs> I don't mm. know. <laughs> but, yeah, it's kind of, that makes sense. So, Yeah. So at the young age of how old did we decide he was? 28. 28. Uh, yeah, he co-founds this Mountain Cove community of spiritualists. Uh, and with his co-founder, uh, the two of them claimed that the land on which they settled their community was the actual site of the Garden of Eden and not just some random plot of land in the mid-Atlantic USA. This is some whitewashing bullshit. That's yeah, yeah. Every every other part, like aspect of the Abrahamic religions happens in the Middle East, but suddenly the Garden of Eden was Virginia you know, on the Atlantic coast. Yeah. No, it's fine. That makes total sense. I mm -hmm. can't possibly see the issue with that. No. And the Mountain Cove community was built to be a refuge where angels could ascend and descend and basically come hang out on earth for a while oh i so want to know what he was smoking it sounds so much fun i know right uh also don't do drugs yes 
But, you know, it just sounds fun. <laughs> Whatever they were on sounds fun. It's uh, wild. That's for fucking sure. Uh, however, as you might expect, uh, Mountain Cove didn't last that long. Uh, according to an account by William Alfred Hines in a book about sort of American communities, I think it's called, but it basically talks about a bunch of these different communes. He wrote, The serpent again made trouble in the Garden of Eden. There were quarrels about property and rebellion against leaders, and in two years the city of refuge became a city of discord and confusion, and those who had fled to the mountain now fled to their former homes. <laughs> I just love that. So... Following the complete disaster that was Mountain Cove, Harris moved to England and spent several years preaching his theology to a congregation in London. He also published many books while in London, uh, but he, of course, as, as he is wont to do, soon grew restless and made his way back to the U.S., settling in the town of Amenia in Dutchess County, New York. In Amenia, he spent five years preaching and building up the infrastructure of the town, not unlike John Humphrey Noyes in Putney and then in Oneida. Uh, in that time, he helped establish a bank, a flour mill, and a large vineyard slash winery. Money, bread, alcohol. It's perfect. I'm down. Yeah. It's literally like you've got the perfect triangle of uh, commerce there, right? Mm. Um, he also amassed a group of about 60 followers, including five Orthodox clergymen and around 20 Japanese people uh, who were originally from the Satsuma province, which is now called something different uh, because... Satsuma? Yeah. I don't know why that makes me laugh. For those not from the UK, Satsuma is like a clementine here. Like a small no, orange. we have clementines. We also have tangerines. But yes, they are a type of small orange. Yeah, type of small orange citrus fruit. So yeah. So he was appealing globally, I guess. I don't... Appealing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. It's one of those days. Uh, yeah, so what's a preacher to do? With a big old group of devotees and some cash from commercial and industrial enterprises? I think we all know the answer to that. You start a community, of course. Because it went so well the last time. Obviously. What else are you going to do? Yeah. And that's exactly what Harris did. Uh, 14 years after the utter failure of the Mountain Cove, uh, Harris founded the Brotherhood of the New Life which settled in the village of Brockton, New York, on the shore of Lake Erie. Uh, the Brotherhood was run as a cooperative rather than a commune, the main difference being that cooperatives are founded as a group of voluntar voluntarily sharing resources towards a common goal versus communes that force members to dis distribute all wealth and resources equally. I think. Very fast and loose with the word equally. <laughs> I mean, yes, I think. Like, I was having trouble trying to put that into words, but like, Basically, <laughs> from what I understand, at least these guys were more, were well, were purporting to be more like, oh, I'm, I'm willingly putting my money and effort and time towards building this utopian society versus some who are like, you have to do this in order to be in this society. 
Yeah, it's it's a bit like, oh no, we're a multi-level marketing company, we're not a pyramid scheme. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a um, it's it's, a, it's the same thing. It's just one has a nicer image. Yeah, it's like uh, good branding. Yeah, uh, the Brotherhood of New Life uh, grew quickly and ran various farming and industrial businesses. While all this cooperative business was going on, Harris was also preaching some interesting things to his followers, including that God and Jesus were both male and female, and that sex was. Sex was the true power behind human existence. I mean, I get that. Like, technically, because, true. <laughs> like you, you need <laughs> sex to conceive a child, and in the days before, you know, test tubes and yeah, petri dishes. Something tells me that's not and I, the way he was going with it, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think he's gonna start talking about um, the gift of life. No, no. Uh, Harris believed that Christianity had made the wrong choice to focus on sexual repression. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes, but I have, again, at some point, this is going to go off the deep end. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is the rest of the sentence. And he preached that sexual energy, with some help from angels, would rid the world of mortal evil. Obviously. And straight in the deep end there. Obviously. Also, men and women were originally androgynous before humans evolved, and as such, each person was constantly looking for their spiritual other half who existed in another realm. Yeah, it got weirder. Okay, we've gone from the deep end straight into the Marianas Trench. Yeah. And perhaps the best of Harris's teachings, oh god, it gets worse, mm-hmm. was the idea that if one changed the way they breathed, they could reach a higher state of divine consciousness and allow angelic beings to flow through their body. Uh, they called this practice, quote, open breathing. And it was similar in nature to yogic breathing. Yeah. So this whole breathing thing, apparently, if you did it right, then Jesus and God and whoever could recognize you by the way you breathed differently. And so you were like marked as like a good, I don't even know if we can call this Christian anymore, a good egg who was divine, a good divine egg <laughs> who breathed right or something. It, it It's confusing and weird. <laughs> this, this is just <laughs> insane. Um... The community also had a successful winery, which was initially attacked by teetotalers and supporters of temperance. Uh, we covered temperance in the Edgar Allan Poe episode, like, way back last Halloween. And a little bit in the Lizzie Borden episode, too. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. So temperance was, was kind of like a, a, a teetotalers yeah. sort of movement. The, the evils of alcohol... And they eventually successfully lobbied for prohibition in the United States. But Harris assured them that his wine was so full of this angelic breath that all the bad effects of alcohol were breathed away, and actually his wine was angelic and divine. (laughs) I can't even say this with a straight face anymore. Uh, No, uh, and just also like thinking about that statement... I don't want my wine to be breathed on, personally. No, whether the it's wine like, itself is supposed to breathe. Yeah, whether it's like magic 
breath or not. I just want like a non-breathy wine, I think. Yeah. I mean, that is enough to put you off wine for life, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. I wonder if this links into, you know, the whole like blood of Christ. I don't know. I like drinking wine at communion. I didn't see anything about that. Basically, he was just like, "Oh yeah, our wine is actually really good for you." I think it again, I think it was marketing. <laughs> mm. uh, Harris was also obsessed with fairies and would often let the fairies speak through him and claim and claim to have a fairy wife named Queen Lily. I am actually so glad you wrote this <laughs> this week's script because I don't think I'd have got this far. Well, and here's the thing gonna thrown everything out the window. Here's the thing. As I was like starting to write it and I'm using like all the base sources, like the Wikipedias and their sources and stuff. It's like, it's all pretty standard. It's like, okay, there's no hell and there's, you know, we can talk to angels, even though we're getting a little bit out there with that. But then as I went further into the like more primary sources, it's like, oh, he has a fairy wife named Queen Lily. Oh, he has magic wine. Oh, everyone has a spiritual, sexual, other realm counterpart or whatever. It's like, oh no. <laughs> it's just getting weirder this, and weirder. This is just far too much for Monday. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, however, as much fun as we've just had with that last segment, uh, Harris's teachings weren't all funny breathing fairies and sex. Oh, well, that's it. I want out I then. Uh, I was up. I was in it up until this point. Uh, like many cult leaders, Harris demanded total devotion from his followers, which included handing over all worldly possessions and wealth to Harris upon joining the community. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I am shocked. Just... What kind of cult demands that to start with? I know. It's unheard of, really. And actually, some wannabe members were even rejected because they were deemed not wealthy enough to join the community. So he was really only looking for the big bucks. <laughs> he also had his followers practice a number of different demeaning rituals. And we know this from the accounts of one famous follower of Harris, who was Lawrence Oliphant, who was a famous British author, diplomat, and actually member of parliament. Hmm. Uh, Oliphant and his mother, Lady Oliphant, who I believe was the surviving wife of a member of the Scottish landed gentry or something. Hmm. Lawrence and his mother, Lady Oliphant, both became enamored with Harris during his time in England and quickly became devout followers. Now, Lawrence Oliphant was initially denied entry to the Brotherhood of the New Life because he wasn't wealthy enough. Uh, but after he got his wealthy mother to join, Harris let Oliphant into the group. Uh, but Harris insisted that Oliphant, who was at that time serving a term in Parliament, uh, he forced him to take a vow of unwavering silence and so Oliphant did that for two years. Does that mean like he didn't speak for two years or he didn't speak of the 
group's activities. I'm pretty sure he didn't speak for two years while he was a member of parliament. <laughs> I mean, MPs, you only need a hand to do that. You just raise your hand, the yeas, the nays. There you go. So maybe it was a job well suited to a vow of silence. Yeah, so he did that. And then in 1867, Oliphant disappeared from London and wasn't seen again until 1870. Oliphant was found in the United States working as a laborer at the Brotherhood of the New Life. Uh, he worked as a farmhand and labored and lived in silence for an extended period of time and was kept away from his mother. And apparently they were very close. Um, and it was actually Lady Oliphant's fortune which allowed Harris to purchase the property in Brockton where the Brotherhood actually settled. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, Oliphant was allowed back into the wider world but had to be ready to return to Harris at a moment's notice. Oliphant served as a journalist during the Franco-Prussian War and met his future wife, Alice, in 1872. Oliphant had to get uh, Harris's approval to wed Alice, which was only given after Alice agreed to sign over her entire fortune and property to Harris. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. So the couple were married, but quickly separated by Harris. He forced Alice to leave the community to earn a living, whilst also keeping control of all her assets, and he sent Oliphant out to New York to work as a director of a cable company. He kept the couple apart for years. Uh, this is the major account of what life was like inside the Brotherhood of the New Life community. So you can imagine that life was probably much worse for members who didn't have wealthy families or globally recognised fame. Yeah. Uh, despite these conditions, the Brotherhood of the New Life was quite popular and its followers reached around 2,000, both in the United States and in the UK. Uh, following his successes, Harris decided to move a chunk of the group out to Santa Rosa in California. He claimed that he had received a message from God to move there. I mean, fair enough, he wouldn't want to go live in California. Is that what happened with you when you went from New York to LA? Yeah, yeah. I just heard a message from God saying, Bitch, there's a polar vortex happening in New York and you could be living in 70 degree sunshine every day. Get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> so, claim to receive a message from New York, just like Taylor. Yeah. Uh, but more likely, he realized that the climate in Santa Rosa was just a heck of a lot better for winemaking than upstate New York. Yeah, you know, it being wine country and all. In Santa Rosa in 1875, Harris founded the Fountain Grove Community. I mean, you've got to have a backup community. Yeah, you? you have to have extras for when one implodes. He learned that mm. from the Mountain Cove, and now we've got Fountain Grove. I think he just wasn't very creative with the naming, now that I say them out loud. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even realize that. <laughs> Fountain Grove and Mountain Cove. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. He's a, he's a rhyming kind of guy. Uh, um, so you've listened this far, and you're probably thinking, like, Okay, guys, you said this is about Glasgow, and so far you haven't mentioned that at all. We're getting there. We promise. So, 
One of Harris's devoted followers was insurance broker Charles Pierce, whom I realize now I did not put in the script, but he was from the UK and uh, eventually lived in Glasgow. So there we go. We've mentioned it. That's it. It's over. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) So Pierce initially became interested in spiritualism in the 1860s and actually became a medium, hosting seances and delivering lectures about how the occult and Christianity could be compatible and work together, which I'm sure scandalized many, um, and even visited the various locations of the Brotherhood over the years. In 1872, he was rejected as a member of the New York settlement because he wasn't rich enough, a recurring theme. Uh, However, he and Harris remained in correspondence. In their letters, Harris called Pierce Sir Steadfast Holdstrong due to his unwavering loyalty, and Pierce called Harris father. Ew. I... I... (laughs) Yep, nobody can see my face except for Taylor, but what the fuck? Yeah, it's weird, right? <sighs> I don't I don't get it. But Sir he- Sir Stead Sir Headfast. <laughs> Sir Steadfast hold strong. It's just like you're like, oh just if you just hang in there, guy, maybe I'll let you in. Just keep being loyal. You're so steadfast. Okay, that sounds like you know when this thing's, you know, like you're the first thing you see on your left oh, in the street you grew yeah, up yeah, in, yeah. that's your pawn name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like your, this is your like cult name. No, I, steadfast, hold strong kind of sounds like a pawn name to Actually, me. Actually, yeah, it does. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Hold, hold mm. strong and long. Yep. There you go. There you go. There you go. At least you didn't call him daddy. <laughs> Right, so, (laughs) moving on from that weirdness. Uh, Once the Brotherhood began their settlement in Santa Rosa, Pierce actually decided to import and sell their wine, which, at that point, the marketing fluff was that it was made by consecrated hands, and Pierce did this through his own company, C.W. Pierce & Co. And actually, because of this, Fountain Grove wine was the first California wine to be imported and commercially sold in Britain. Yeah. So there you go. Pierce was an outspoken socialist and defender of women's rights. He wrote often in labor publications about how men and women were, though physically and mentally different, essentially equal and should be treated as such. He also wrote of the terrible, quote, brutal lust of the dominant male and argued for bodily autonomy for women as well as equal access to divorce. And these views soon attracted his future wife, Bella, who was an outspoken and fiery feminist activist in her own right. I mean, that is the way to my heart. (laughs) Yeah. So his wife, Bella, was like, that's hot. Let's bone. And the two got married. (laughs) In those words, exactly. Uh, Then two got married in 1891, because, you know, you can't just feminously bone without marriage in the late 1890s. Uh, And the two of them 
together continued devoting their lives to both Harris's teachings and labor, socialist, and feminist causes. Uh, and with the Pierce's help, Harris began to build a small group of supporters in Glasgow. But scandals back in America made it difficult for Harris to gain widespread support. And what are those scandals, you may ask? Well, one big one had to do with Lawrence Oliphant. After being separated from his wife for years, the two were finally allowed to reunite, but Oliphant's beloved mother soon became ill and died. After her death, Harris's hold over Oliphant kind of shattered, and Oliphant broke with the Brotherhood and with Harris. He charged Harris with fraud and robbery, and actually managed to recover a great deal of his fortune through legal action against Harris. As always, with these old cases, uh, sources differ, but some say that Oliphant left the Brotherhood, but his wife stayed behind, and though Oliphant disagreed with Harris as a person, he still believed in his teachings and would continue to champion them throughout his life. His cousin, who was uh, British writer Margaret Oliphant, uh, published a memoir of Lawrence Oliphant in 1891, detailing the whole affair, which quickly caused scandal and trouble for Harris. After moving out to Fountain Grove, Harris had become more secluded and shied away from public life. He instead remained in private and issued writings to a secret circle of his followers uh, that largely dealt with sex. Uh, by 1891, he declared that his body had been renewed to a youthful vigour and that he had discovered the secret of resuscitation and was now immortal. As all good cult leaders are. Yeah. There's... I didn't put all of it in here. But basically, in his later years with these various communities he got real into the sex stuff so you know that's never good no not when it's accompanied by a cult or a comedy yeah pretty much uh when it's two or however many consulting adults in a private space that's, that's fine. fine when it becomes communal uh, no yeah. lines get a little blurry there um and in 1891 even more trouble came for Harris in the form of, quote, suffragist, sociologist, spiritual scientist, nationalist, nationalist, magazine writer, and reformer, Alzir Chevalier. Uh, Alzir and her mother spent six months at Fountain Grove before leaving in a, quote, disillusioned huff. I mean, that's how I leave every interaction. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and after this, she vowed to expose Harris and even threatened to present evidence of immorality and fraud to the President of the United States. So, you know, she was serious. Uh, she gave lectures where she demanded Harris be sent to prison and charged him with being a vampire, a lecherous fiend, a horrible sensualist, and the greatest black magician of the day. I mean, all this story was missing was vampires, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not, right? Uh, <laughs> so, San Francisco's papers ran with Chevalier's characterizations of Harris, and he was swarmed with disgrace, basically. 
Uh, Harris fled California, but not before marrying one of his longtime followers, Jane Lee Waring, who it just so happened was an heiress. That's convenient. It is, right? Uh, the pair fled to Manhattan, where Harris largely retired from public life and from the like day-to-day management of his communities, though he did still write a weekly newsletter that got distributed amongst everyone. Now, Glasgow's press was actually just as suspicious of Harris as San Francisco's, and many publications ran stories denouncing him. The Glasgow Evening News published a report that he had, quote, poached a few promising men from Glasgow to join his, quote, weird, impossible colony of communistic cranks. Try saying that after you've had a few. Yes. Uh, Another publication, The Wave, called Fountain Grove an idealized house of sin and a den of iniquitous debauchees whose only religion is the satisfaction of the passions. So basically they were like dirty, dirty, dirty people. (laughs) Well, thank you for that wonderful description. You're welcome. A handful of reports surfaced that Harris had declared that community members' celestial partners would inhabit his body. See where this is going. Mm -hmm. And only through sex with him could they commune with their true soulmates. Yeah. I mean, at this point, he's getting on a bit. So, so let's say 1891, he would be... He's like around 70. Hmm. So, so that is a lot of sex to be having at that age. Yeah. I'm, I'm bordering on being impressed. <laughs> well, he had Jesus on his side and the, and the fairies <laughs> and he was a vampire, you know, like he's got, he's, he's, he's juggling a lot of balls. This guy. I mean, Viagra have cr- clearly got their marketing wrong. I know. Right. All you need is an imaginary fairy. Fairy queen wife thing yeah it's fine (laughs) and another huge blow to the community came with the death of harris's own granddaughter uh, 15 year old mary m harris at fountain grove in 1896 fountain grove's higher-ups took great pains to get mary's death publicized as a suicide though there is now much debate over the accuracy of those claims Uh, mary died after taking an overdose of strychnine The official story involved Mary taking the poison in a fit of, quote, temporary insanity in an effort to scare other members of the community. This is how Kane Nagasawa put it. Nagasawa was Harris's protege and had taken over the running of Fountain Grove after he fled. There is some speculation that Mary may have actually taken her own life because she was being forced into an arranged marriage. It was after these events that Harris and Waring came to Glasgow in 1903. So he's 80 at this point. Mm -hmm. They stayed with Charles and Bella Pierce in their Langside Villa, south of the River Clyde. Nice area, Mm -hmm. south side, around Queen's Park. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, Their home had become the unofficial hub of Harris's teachings in Britain, and during his visit, the house received a steady stream of curious visitors. However, most of these visitors were just that. Curious, but not serious. Much to Harris and Waring's dismay. Uh, By this point, he was 
eight years old, as we just said, and perhaps his captivating influence was waning. The Glasgow Spiritualist Society cancelled a talk he had planned with them, and a feature about him that was supposed to appear in the Glasgow Evening News was never printed. Yeah, he's having a rough go of it. Mm. Uh, But the Pierces delighted in Harris's company and were mesmerized by him. He would allow the fairies to speak through him each morning at breakfast. What a nice way to start the day. Uh, And spoke often of his spiritual fairy wife, Queen Lily, and claimed that she lived with their spiritual children in Lilistan in the kingdom of heaven. Oh my god, so not only does he have an imaginary wife, he now has imaginary children as well. Yeah. and his, This is essentially what it is. And he's talking about all this shit while his actual wife, who, by the way, was his third wife, I could find no information about his first two wives. Um, Hopefully they hightailed it out of there. Yeah. So he's talking about his Queen Lily, like, fairy wife with his real wife in the room. So. Does she have like a king fairy husband? She must. I mean, because otherwise, I mean, it's not very fair, is it? She has a celestial counterpart. This that is true. She can only access through Harris's old man Dick. But like, <laughs> yeah, I said it with his his magic fairy Viagra. Yeah, just this gets weirder and weirder. Um, right. So. That was a fun breakfast activity for everyone. His efforts in Glasgow did earn him one devoted follower. (laughs) 62-year-old Jesse Donaldson, whom I'm not sure if this is a man or a woman. It was never made clear. Uh, But... Spelled that way, I would have thought it was a woman. Yeah. So it's a possibility. Uh, Donaldson was, according to an article in Glasgow Live, which we'll link along with everything below. Uh, Donaldson was a six foot three pianist and a quote unquote rich soul. I'm sure she was. Rich soul or rich human? Mm-hmm. Who's to say? Uh, and Donaldson actually returned with Harris to New York. This visit to Glasgow was ultimately the last gasp for Harris, who died in 1906 at age 83. But because he had declared himself immortal, his followers refused to believe he was dead and insisted he was just sleeping. A very breathless sleep. Yes, very. Well, they had that whole thing about breath, so maybe this was just another one of his techniques. He just stopped breathing for a while. Just hold his breath for years and years. Yeah. Um, They kept up these assertions for three months before finally admitting he was dead. (laughs) Uh, Following Harris's death, Kanai Nagasawa continued to run Fountain Grove and acted as the leader of the Brotherhood of the New Life until 1934. He helped cement Fountain Grove's importance in Santa Rosa and grew the winery to encompass 2,000 acres of vineyards. Uh, There is a street in Santa Rosa named Thomas Lake Harris Drive and the iconic Fountain Grove Red Barn. Nope. Round Barn. Round Barn. It is red. 
also. <laughs> red, round, round red. Uh, the iconic Fountain Grove Round Barn, which was part of the winery, became an emblem in the town. And the Round Barn stood until it burned down in the 2017 Tubbs uh, wildfire. Uh, there's definitely less information about the Brotherhood of the New Life than there is about, say, like the Oneida community, but their similarities are many. And though some of the details about what was happening within the Brotherhood day to day were fuzzy, I think it's safe to assume that Harris was wielding his considerable power and influence in much the same way as the other cult leaders we've talked about so far. He demanded spiritual devotion, financial control, and more than likely sexually abused his followers. Uh, and personally, I think that Glasgow should be proud that the city largely rejected and saw through his dogma. Yeah. Uh, and that is the story of the sex cult leader who came to visit Glasgow in 1903. Wow. It's a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I've made my thoughts pretty clear with my random sarcastic comments throughout. It, it, is, it is really similar to the Oneida community. It is, which kind of amazes, especially with like the origins in upstate New York, the Calvinist backgrounds the although these guys were less like everyone is married to everyone mm. and they were more like everyone is married to someone in another realm so you're essentially married to no one i don't know <laughs> it's all a bit of a mess really isn't it oh i should say also that it's likely that these guys practice the same male sexual continence uh, it's also called like edging, caretza, yeah, all that stuff. So there, there were actually not many children born into this community. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I have no follow-up thoughts. But once I am speechless. Yeah, um, I don't really know what to say. I I'm so curious what the Jesus breath consecrated wine tasted like. No, I don't think I want to know. <laughs> I'm not a wine drinker, so you know. Yeah. See, I'm ima I'm imagining that it was red wine. I don't know why I've imagined that, but I don't really like red wine, so probably because of like red wine is associated with the church, yeah, the blood of Christ, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. I was also going red wine. Yeah. So who knows? Also, I think it's very impressive that in the 1800s they successfully ran a vineyard in upstate New York, which is so not the climate for that. <laughs> like you can do it. I there are some local vineyards near us in Vermont, but boy, is it not ideal. <laughs> yeah, I mean there are vineyards in England. Yeah, it can be done. It's just it's a lot harder. Yeah, but yeah, th this guy's kind of weird because like the I, I think he at the time he was quite notorious, but as the years have gone on his sort of like the the specific details of him and the communities have kind of faded away is fountain grove is that still a winery is there still i don't know actually because if you think like the oneida yeah still exists still... in its various forms doesn't it yeah um and under you know various offshoots and trademarks and stuff so you can see why the oneida origin story has survived i mean i know that 
like part of Santa Rosa is still called Fountain Grove. Oh. But where else is Santa Rosa? It's in Sonoma County. It's north of San Francisco. It's so it's the next county over from Napa, which is famously wine country. Napa Valley. Yeah, Napa Valley. So it's like north of San Francisco. West of Sacramento. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that in Santa Rosa, there's still definitely like evidence of these guys, but I don't think that the winery itself still exists. Yeah. I mean, that could. That could be a big part of it. Yeah, that could very much be the reason why one is more well remembered than the other is. Yeah. So I think now we have to all go practice our breathing techniques and um, uh, build refuges for uh, angels to come walk among us and drink our blessed wine and and seek out our celestial uh, counterparts. Yeah, I'm not going to do any of that. Sounds exhausting, quite honestly. Mm, Very time-consuming. Yeah, yeah. I already have enough trouble just, like, remembering how to breathe properly the normal way. So, like, I think that would be challenging to sort of switch that all around. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, obviously, this... I'm going to be real honest with y'all. There's slim pickings for cults in Scotland. Uh, Mm. And... I dare say that's a good thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> um, percent agree. There's like the story of this guy and his sort of small following within Glasgow, and then there's uh, some pedophilia connections to the, I believe it's the Children of God, uh, cult slash the family, yeah. mm. um, which is not fun to write about or read about and queen lily the fairy is a lot more fun to write about yeah it's uh i as i say i'm really glad you took this one because (laughs) i would not finish it (laughs) i'd been like no we're doing something completely different this week this is crazy (laughs) Mm. moving on uh but that's how i like them absolutely true fucking weird (laughs) so yeah that's what we've got we are going to go back into the future slash present next week for cults we kind of we started going chronologically and then this one kind of messed it all up yeah so uh that's all for this week uh oh cult yay or nay yes yes 100 percent 100 percent Fucking magic wine. I mean, the magic wine, the the fairies who can only be accessed through the old man dick. Yep, yep, yep. That's a big one. That's a big one. The handing over all your wealth. Also that, which I think is what sets it apart from Oneida in a lot of ways because this was like literally you got to have a lot of money to get in and it's all mine once you're here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd say definitely a cult. No, no question about that. Absolutely. Yeah.
If you like the show, please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app of choice, especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe so you never miss a new episode, like next week's episode about cults. Uh, Please do share this episode or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed with a friend that you think might like it, and be sure to tell us your thoughts on social media or even via email. And we would really love to read out some of your thoughts in future episodes, so tell them to us on social media or you can write to us at info at squaremileofmurder.com. Voting has opened for the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice Awards. This is voted for entirely by the listeners. All the other awards are by a panel of quote-unquote experts, whereas the Listener's Choice Awards is voted for by you, the listeners. Uh, to vote for us, all you have to do is go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and there's a little search box, you just type in square mile of murder. You have to put your email address in and they send you an email and you click the link and that's your vote done. Voting closes on, I think it's July 4th. I think it is, yeah. And the ceremony is July 10th. If you would like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon page. Tears start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes a day early, a shout out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime merch discount. And that's just for £1 a month. As the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive Money Can't Buy merch. Uh, check that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. And uh, we will see you next week. I oh, will see our patrons on Friday. Yes. For our monthly ramble. Yes, all two pound and up patrons. Where we go completely off script. Because believe it or not, we do normally have a script. Yeah. I mean, even when they're like this, bullshit. <laughs> uh, we go completely off script and talk about pretty much any thoughts that come into our heads. Yep. Patrons, we'll see you on Friday. Everyone else, we will see you next week with yeah. another cult episode. Yes, we will. Do look forward to that. And and in the meantime, we hope you find your celestial counterpart. Yeah. And hopefully don't have to sleep with an old man to find it. Yeah. Unless that's what you're into, I mean. I mean, yeah. We should stop. We should. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. Bye.